Powerful verses. As we get into this study this morning, we're looking at the theme of freedom in Galatians. And the theme of Galatians, um, as far as I've, I've been praying, thinking about uh, your personal understanding of what it means to apply the gospel into your life. And this book has really been challenging, uh, rich to dig in. There's only six chapters, but boy, is it deep. And as we get into it, you, I find myself really... Uh, wonderfully caught up in a prayer saying, Lord, and I did this last week, I said, Lord, I want to share the gospel. Give me opportunities to go share the gospel. And, and, and wanting to say, Lord, I just want to see you at work. And so it's hard if you're <clears throat> riding in your car around Chesterland, you don't, you don't naturally make connections, so you have to be intentional. <clears throat> Excuse me. You have to be intentional to go out and Look for opportunities or make opportunities. Like the proverb said, a wise man makes more opportunities than he finds. So I was looking for opportunities. When I came back from Bob and Simon, Bob and Pat yesterday, I stopped at a garage sale. You don't know this. <clears throat> but down by and uh, Russell, I stopped at this garage sale and I met this guy who was a mover in the area. And his name was Pete. And Pete uh, has some furniture, and he has some bookshelves. That's why I start. Pete, Peter Iverson. Nobody knows Peter. But he's, but he's a great guy, and he's done a lot of work. And he had his mask on, and I left my mask at your place. And so I said, sorry, I don't have my mask. So I went looking for my car. I didn't have one. But Pete and I got into a conversation. And I said, okay, Lord, you've opened the door, so I'm going to go through it. And I don't know about you, but there's, there's something different happening in the, in the States. I thought, this is so unusual for me. It's just, it's just different now. And so everybody's cautious about everything. And so as I <clears throat> began to talk to him, I, I mentioned, gave him uh, my name, because he had some bookshelves I was looking at. And, uh, and I told him I'm, I'm down here at the church. And so, but I was in, I gave my Part of my testimony, my background, I'm new in the area, kind of thing, so on and so forth, it's kind of easy. And then he started <clears throat> to talk about, well, yeah, I, uh, things are back different in America. So he was talking about the changes. And as he was talking about the change, I thought, okay, now, how do I, how do I move this into a, a spiritual conversation? Those are always transitions you want to be sensitive to. And I said, you know, the, uh, the heart of it, Part of it is it's just we're just so darn argumentative. Uh, we don't talk to each other very long. And he said this. He says, yeah, I'm surprised that I've talked this long with you because I don't have long conversations with people. I soon, Quickly, they, I, I either understand where they are and they understand where I am and we don't talk. We just kind of we don't talk. He says, but, you know, you've got me interested. And he said, I, I, everybody's got their belief systems. And and I've got mine, because you've got to believe in something. He said, but I believe you've got to be skeptical about everything. And then he said, get this, he says, and I, I kind of believe in Spinoza's God. Uh, Albert Einstein and Spinoza, I, I think I've, I'm thinking, here he is opening up to me. Now, how does that happen? I'm telling you, the Spirit of God is at work in people's hearts if you knock on the door and open. And here we were for 15 minutes talking about his view of faith 
and his understanding, and then somebody else came in and got it. But I've got his card. So I went home, and I didn't get a chance to share much more than uh, I'm here at the church. We're American Baptist, and let me share you a little bit about, we got into his background. And he's just kind of all over the map, a kind of a casserole Christian. Uh, kind of a funny way of putting it. But uh, the Lord said, Jerry, give him a call back. So last night I'm going to, he said that. So I'm going to go back and make it, see if I can get a cup of coffee with him and pursue that conversation. Because he was open and it was a pleasant time. But there, we, there I was again thinking, how do you bring this, this gospel to people? Well, in light of this sermon today, I want to share with you what I've been sharing with you, that there are some core assumptions, your worldview, that you believe. And what do you really believe? Nobody asks you that question. And you probably don't ask other people that question. But in our Declaration of Independence, you know this phrase. It says, we hold these truths to be self-evident. And there are certain truths that you will understand as as you'll hear during this election ceremony, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We hold these things. These are our core assumptions. And as you think about what you think about, at the core of what you think about, uh, this is what we don't do very well. We just kind of assume that what we hold is to be true. Whatever position that is, whether it's a casserole Christianity or an atheist position, but we don't tend to think about that. But Paul did, because Paul was in a, an, an unusual journey where God said, Paul, <clears throat> I want to change your thinking. And so last week we looked at this idea of faith and reason that Paul was reasoning through his faith and he used his mind, that gift, that servant of the rational mind to, to serve his heart that's worshiping Christ. And so Paul reasoned through his faith. But these are the core assumptions. We hold these personal truths. We hold things that we don't know if they're true or not. They may be lies or they may be truth. But either way, there are certain things that you buy into and then you take home and they become yours. These are your assumptions. And as you get into understanding and listening to people what their assumptions are, you will often hear that Christ is not in there. And therefore, how to bring Christ into the assumptive world. But there are certain truths, and you've got to hear this, certain truths hold us. Truths like death. Life, worries, injustices, truths about sin, truths about regrets, things that you really are fearful of. It'll grab you and paralyze you. So Paul says, let no anxiety uh, hold you to the point that you can't pray. But there are things that hold us that we don't move. And anxiety and fears, doubts, those are some of the relationships hold us. They catch our emotions and they catch us. Money holds us. We're trapped by burdens or debt or greed or lust. And, and so there's lots of things that are rooted to our desires. And our desires hold us. 
what we think about the Bible, what we think about ourselves, what we think about God. And then somewhere in there, we hold on to the gospel, sometimes lightly, sometimes firmly, but the idea that certain truths hold us. But when Paul met and Paul called him Lord, the truth in Christ is not some cold, abstract, assumptive principle, but it's a person of infinite love and infinite grace. And when Paul met Christ, Christ held Paul. Truths that are not so evident, questions that really disturb us or think kind of interfere with us. God, what do you think about me? Why did you make me? Why am I here? What do you think about my sin? Is there a way I could be made right with you? God, do you still want me? Will you forgive me? And then others, what must I do to be saved? These are questions that at the deepest core, every person you meet in a grad cell or a giant eagle or anywhere you go, God is calling every individual. Where are you, Adam? Is not a geographical, a GPS kind of question. It's a relational question. In relationship to me, where did you go? Adam, where are you? God knows exactly where he is. It's not for God's information that he asks the questions for ours. But there are certain truths that hold us, that we hold these truths to be self-evident. And, and part of that is that there's a way which seems right to us, it just, that just way it should be, or I think it is, or, but its way is the end of death. And if you understand the biblical design and you don't follow that design, you're going to be off track you're going to be dealing with things that you will regret and will control you and hold you. And that's what's happening in our country. Uh, there are a number of men, one Dallas Willard in particular just said this, but there are a number of people who have said this, uh, from the Emergent Church group to uh, from Francis Schaeffer when I was growing up to a number of people who question where is America going, where is Christianity in America going, uh, but the radical shifts that are occurring and progressing in the wrong way, I would add, through the contemporary forms of the Christian faith in the United States, it's the marketing of the gospel, accommodating what we hold to be true, accommodating them to market the gospel so that the world will come into the church. Cue from the customer, and you're trying to really make this fit, this communication, this persuasion, the sales job to get people. And so we've, we're adapting the gospel so many ways, but not Paul. Paul would not reason according to the world. He would reason his way through scriptures, according to the scriptures. As Jesus would say, it is written. It is written. And therefore, jack out of the box, page number one, Verse number one, Paul, an apostle of God, not sent from men. This is not man-made, nor through the agency of man, instituted by man, not through the traditions of man, not through the precepts of man, not through the rules of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He starts there. 
And he never leaves that. But we do. But the thing for you to understand in Galatians, what's really intriguing to me, is that in order for Paul to deal with these Galatians who are leaving the gospel, just like we've left the gospel, likewise, we too need to follow the steps of Paul as he's dealing with the Galatians. And here's what he's dealing with. When he says, you guys are really confused, you're, you're being bewitched, you're being persuaded, by something else is shifting what you hold to be true, and you're, what you're holding is being taken out of your hands, and you're being influenced in the wrong way. And here's the overview of, of Galatians. Paul is saying, no, 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 you're being led by a lie. And he goes into this idea that to correct this confusion, to correct this distortion of the wrong gospel, he says, I've got to get back into the, the, the issue of the law. And that's what we're going into today. Because the, what they Jewish people would say is that we are justified by keeping the law. By doing what's right, we will be made righteous. And Paul says, no, uh, you got to rethink this because when Christ comes on the scene, he's introduced a whole new way of being called the kingdom of God. And therefore, let's look and reason through this law part. It's the same thing for us today. But in America, it's not the law because we're not Jewish. We're Gentiles. And therefore, our issue is not law, but it's lawlessness. Just the opposite. But nevertheless, the law and lawlessness will deal with the same core truth of sin, which is what you've got to get to. But then he moves into liberty. You move from the law to this liberty and that freedom in Christ that, that Paul says, there's something that God wants for you, and it's called liberty, and that liberty is going to transform you in such a way that there's a new way of thinking, a new truth that you should hold on to or holds on to you that leads you into an ability to love. And that love, that grace is going to be wonderful if you can get to it. But you can't get to that because you've got to go through the law and then you've got to go and understand the liberty, which is what I want us to do as we get into the, this topic. But here we are in Galatians 3. In Galatians 3, he starts, this was part of the Bible study last week, that, that Paul says, don't you understand, you who are wanting to be justified by the law, that first of all, that you understand that the law is going to bring a curse. And that curse is a way of thinking about you. What God says about you is you're either going to be blessed or you're going to be cursed in the garden. They said, you got to go. And they put the guards on the, on the gate, and he left. Uh, Jesus would say, cursed is the serpent. And if you're living apart from me, you are going to be cursed. But there was a promise given to Adam, the loincloth covering, the, the, the promise that he made to Adam, that there would be a covering for his sin in the seed that would be coming the seed of the woman. But he says, you're going to be cursed. Now, that was a new thing for me because I don't use the word curse, not that it's cussing or some bad word. This is, cursing means you have done such damage to the relationship that I no longer want to be involved with you. Cursing means that I'm going to destroy you. Cursing means you have no part with me 
and therefore I'm through and finished. Get out of here. The idea of cursing, it says to Abraham, God says, those who curse you, I will go after and do the same to them as they did to you. I will curse those who curse you, and I will say good things and bless those who bless you. Cursing is a word, a declaration, a decision that says, you are mine, you are not mine. And therefore, if you keep the law as the basis of salvation, you are not mine. You'll be under a curse. And so they understood that. Paul says, if you want to go that way, you're going to be going into the wrong direction because you forget the covenant. And that covenant, that covenant then, it would be more than a word spoken about you. It's a word spoken about God. And that covenant would mean that there would be a promise given. That promise of the covenant is that, that I am going to do for you what you can't do for yourself. And that's where Jesus fulfilled the covenant. He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the promise as the Messiah, as the Christos, the one that would be the promise, one that would fulfill all the requirements of the law. He didn't come to destroy the law. He came to do that which you and I can't do. And the promise is that his righteous keeping of the law would be a promise given to us later on. Well, if you're Jewish people and you've got 2,000 years of history of, of cutting your eye teeth on Moses, and, and, and you say, well, but, but, but we're Jew, this ritual, the temptation, we are the people of God, we've got the covenants, we've got the temple, we've got... We've got all this ritual, the Torah, that we're, we're practicing, we're doing, and you're saying that's not enough? And Paul says, you don't understand that the purpose of Moses giving you the law, it wasn't in substitution of the covenant. The covenant was given before there was even an Israel. The covenant was given to Abraham, and Abraham hadn't done anything. But what was promised to Abraham is promised to you before the law. The law was added 430 years later. Abraham wasn't circumcised. Abraham didn't have a Torah. Abraham didn't have the Ten Commandments. He didn't have anything except he had the promise of God. And Paul will go on to say, it's just like, it's just like any human contract. Once you, once you settle into an agreement... You don't change the rules after you settle the agreement. And the promise is, I'm going to bless you because I'm going to bless you, period. My promise, my purpose is to really help you have life, but not through the law. And therefore, the law is going to say, just like an x-ray, oh, this is wrong. This needs to be taken care of. Oh, this is wrong. This needs to be taken care of. And the law is going to expose our need for faith. It never was given for the purpose to try to achieve salvation, but we misunderstand that. And therefore, Paul calls this law a tutor, a substitute teacher, a virtual person who comes alongside you and says, here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to do. But the law was a guardian, a tutor, one that kind of like in the slavery times, the, the slave was brought in off the field and they were given house privileges to do special training to educate the kids. The personalized teacher, the substitute teacher, until the professor came. And when the professor came, the substitute was no longer needed. He was just a tutor to guide to 
the professor's coming, the master's coming, the teacher. Uh, and so the law is going to lead us to the Christ one. And that law was going to be understood not as the means to an end, but as a preparation to meet the Alpha and the Omega. And therefore, with that teacher coming to explain the promise of the covenant, faith would be introduced, and that faith, apart from the law, faith in the Messiah, would be the one that Christ would say, this one is mine. This one is mine. And believing in Christ, the assumptions would be that if you're one with Christ, if you're baptized in Christ, you would be marked as though you would take a wool into dye and you pull it out, the wool would change colors. So the identity would change colors, the transition from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. There'd be a change, and all that change is involved in a very complex, deep-rooted in the history and the salvation of Christ. It wasn't just faith in faith. It was a special saving faith in Christ. And all through the New Testament, you see these little words, by him, for him, in him, through him, 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 but not through the law, by the law. It's just the opposite, but through Christ, the clothing would be given, that Christ's righteousness would be made possible. To you, Jew, who are trying to keep the law, to you who are non-Jew, who are trying to not keep the law, it doesn't make a difference. Christ is the end of the law, and therefore the beginning of our faith. And so you need to correct your thinking, Galatians. You've got to get back to Christ. But the idea that keeping the law was such, so deeply rooted in the consciousness that we've got to keep the law, don't we? And so Paul would say to the Judaizers who are coming to the Galatian Gentiles, you've got to go all the way and be Jewish. And Paul says, no, 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 no. We are Jews by birth. We're not Gentile. And we're, we're not sinners, but we, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. Again, in Chesterland, 2020, these words of 2,000 years ago echo in my mind because when I talk to Peter, he'll be justified by keeping his laws, his beliefs, even though he's not Jewish, he's got his own way of thinking that if I do what I think I'll do, I'll get into heaven. We're not justified by what we think. We're not justified by what we do. Not by the works of the law, but only by faith in Christ. And so I wanted to know, did he have faith in Christ? I don't know where he was in this issue. Does he have faith in Christ? Would Christ say to Peter, this one is mine? Would he say, I don't know. I don't know if he knows. But that's what I want to know. So when I go back, I want to make that the focus. Well, Paul would say it this way. So we too, we have put our faith in Christ, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one's going to be justified. Now let me show you how this works. And Paul used that word, for we maintain, for we hold that one is justified. This is Paul's core assumption. 
it's not my faith that saves me. It's faith in Christ that saves me. It's a saving faith, a salvific faith, apart from the works. Now, this is kind of tricky. So let me show you how this works. If Christ did not need to die, if righteousness and justification could, be, could give you life, Christ wouldn't have to die, right? But because Christ had to die, until the real righteousness that you'd get from the law would be a substitute, a tutor, for the, until the real teacher comes. But the issue is, why did Jesus have to die? And you know the story, but it's good to hear it again. But, but the issue is, why wasn't there another way that you can get around this thing? Why did Jesus have to die? Well, let me explain it this way. David said, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Psalm 89, 14. Loving kindness and truth go before you. And to step into the very presence of God, the holy, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, wonderful priest, king, savior, lord, prophet, healer, to go before the Lord as king of kings and lord of lords, you're going to find righteousness and justice. And you hear a lot about this because you were built to sense justice. We hear about social injustice and inequalities. Well, here you come before God and you're coming before the throne that's righteous and just. And that's one side, but loving kindness and truth are on the other. Righteousness and justice, loving kindness and truth. What justice says, you need to get objectively what the law says you deserve. What love says is you're going to get that which you don't deserve. And both are intention in God's heart because he's got to figure out a way, how do I love them without giving up my justice? Or how do I do justice without giving up my love? And therefore the tension is brought together in this little story that I'm going to tell you. First Peter, First Peter 3, chapter uh, 3, verse 18. You know this verse. Memorize this verse. For Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You know this verse, right? Now let me ask you, when did Jesus die? Oh, shoot, it's up there. When did Jesus die? Okay, good. I know it's getting warm in here, so hang on there. Here's the question. When Christ died for you at 33 uh, AD, when he died for your sins, how many sins had you committed? How, when Christ died, how many sins had you committed? Are you, woo, woo. <laughs> yeah, zero. And so if Christ died for sins, uh-oh, I lost my connection, that's where it's coming back. When Christ died for sins, I hadn't committed any sins, right? You hadn't either. I was born 1953. I'm getting it back here. And uh, I was born 1953, and therefore I wasn't even around to commit the sins. And therefore, uh, when Christ died for sins, uh, 
which sins of mine did he die for? Okay. Yeah. So I was born in 53, and therefore, from that point on, he died for all of my future sins, right? Okay. Let me try to get this back up here, because the next slide's important. Therefore, when you put your birthday on there, and so when Christ died for your sins, put your birth date on there, and now let's do a little bit of math, as we're still having trouble with this. You do the math, and then uh, you ask yourself, if you were to sin three times a day, word, thought, deed, or action, uh, and you were to... Uh, count those up. How many sins in 365, uh, three times a day, how many sins do you have in a year? Oh, there you are. Thank you. And so the idea that round it off to a thousand sins. And so you're at a thousand sins. If I'm 67 years old, if I were to die tonight, with the number of my sins multiplied by a thousand, I've got sixty thousand sins on my account. Sixty thousand sins, and therefore the idea that if I were to go to God and, and God would ask me the simple question, Jerry, do you love me? And I've got sixty-seven thousand. Remember what He said to Peter? Peter just denied Christ. Do you love me, Peter? And Peter would say. Uh, how would you feel going before God with 67,000 or whatever your age times a thousand? How would you feel going before the Lord? Oops. Ashamed? Yeah, you'd be ashamed. What are the feelings? What would, you, what would your body posture be? Yeah. You, you wouldn't be able to stand, would you? And would you make eye contact? No. No, you wouldn't. And therefore, the idea is, is that if you go to Christ and uh, he says, do you love me? Then you think, I can't answer that. I can't answer that. And there, therefore, if Christ died once for all, the just for the unjust, it says, to bring us to God. And as he brings us to God, Christ is going to bring us before the Father. And before the Father, we're going to stand there with 67,000 sins. Now, I'm before the Father, but I'm not the only one there before the Father because there's somebody else there. And he's called Satan. In Revelation 12.10, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. And he accuses the brethren night and day. The idea that the accuser of the brethren would come before God and he would accuse me and he would accuse you, you don't deserve to be here, right? You sinned. You don't love God, right? And Satan's going to walk past us and walk past us and accuse and attack and say, God, you can't allow this sinner because of your justice to get into heaven. And we would say, yeah, he's right. I, I can't. I can't lift my head. 
And God, you can't do it. And so now Satan turns on God and begins to attack the very holiness of God. You have to condemn him and send him to me because you can't accept this sinner in your sight. And now Satan is out to destroy the very message that God has because he's got an argument that he's demanding God fulfill the righteousness of the law. And the law says your holiness is going to make you judge him. And we know that's true. And before the throne, Satan attacks. Likewise, we feel like we will attack ourselves. Don't need, forget Satan. Our own, our own person, we would judge ourselves. We are not worthy. We would say, we don't deserve to get in. We know that. And therefore, if, we're, if the contempt isn't coming from outside, the contempt will come from the inside. I, 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 I didn't do that. And therefore, what holds you is your guilt, your shame, your sin. Well, the good news is this. We're not alone. There's one who's gone before us, who's, who's striding way ahead of us, and that's Christ. And so the Messiah comes over, and he says to the Father, Look, Father, you said, you said that if I were to go to the cross, and I would die for the sins, and if Jerry would believe me, that my death on the cross would remove the guilt, would remove the shame, would remove the fear, would remove any kind of block or obstacles that he would have of running to you, Father. Look, Father, I died for him. In May 10th, 1972, Jerry put his faith in me. But 33 AD, I put my faith in you, Father, that the promise and the covenant that we made would be fulfilled. And Jerry now believes that, and by faith, he is mine. And Satan says, you can't do that. You can't do that. Because that's not right. And God says, I can do that. I did do that. And with one little word, he fell Satan. It is finished. And with that, the Lord looks at me as I am just as if I had never sinned because I put on the clothes of Christ's righteousness. It's called imputation. It's called being justified by faith. And therefore, when you see the, you see the nail, you see the cross, you see the promise of Christ, wonderful love, that here, here at the throne, truth and mercy, justice and kindness all come together in Christ. And if you are in Christ, then you're free from all those things that kept you away from Christ. The power of sin, the fear of judgment, all those have been removed. And you move through law, and apart from the law, you've been justified by faith in Christ. And being clothed in Christ, you now say, I'm an error. I belong to the family. That righteousness, that justice is yours. And it's yours because it's accounted to your account, not based on what you feel, 
not based on what you do, not based on what you believe, not based on what you think. It's based on this person who died on the cross. And if you were there at that time and you took your finger across that beam, you would get a splinter. Just as real as that blood came down, just as real as that promise of forgiveness for you. And the Galatians were walking away from that. And being persuaded. Paul says, no, no. You've got to understand, by faith, apart from the law, we're made right before God. And so with that, Paul begins to address this issue of what it means to be righteous, accepted, welcomed, wanted. And those questions, God, do you want me? Even while we were sinners, God still loves me, us. And while he sent his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not be condemned, would not be perished, would not be cursed, because the son hung on the tree and removed the curse and gave us the blessing. That shift, that transformation is what Paul understood. This is what the Messiah came to do. Now, to understand that Jesus died is history. But did he but to understand that Jesus died for you is salvation. It's one thing to believe. It's one thing to believe that he did it for you. Jesus died. Why did he die? For you. It wasn't his sins that he died for, for he knew no sin. And Christ did not know sin until he knew my sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that I would become the righteousness of God. And therefore you have this gift, this open-handed, I receive the gift of faith. I receive the promise of, of salvation. I receive the justification by faith. And I can say to Satan, get out of here. It's finished. This truth holds me. And for that reason, Paul says and corrects the Galatians, this is the first step. That is, is, it is just as if you have never sinned. This is the grace of God given because of the Christ of God. Good news. The law is bad news. Christ is good news. And that leads us into chapter 4 about the liberty that we have in Christ. And that liberty is going to lead you into love. And you see how that fits in there because Paul is reasoning through his, his thinking. Well, the idea that Christ will hold you, Christ's word, Christ's promise, the faith in Christ holds us. And that's why we conclude with this song. He will hold us fast. No matter what you do, as we get into this thinking of the next couple of weeks, you're going to understand, but what does that mean about my life? If, if, if it's just by grace, am I free to do whatever I want? No, 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 no. You need to understand the big picture is that there's new life in Christ. And that liberty is to enable you to love in new ways. Not just to go free, get out of jail card free kind of thing. But to really go back to the one who died for you. As he spread out his arms to you, so we spread out our arms to him. And he embraces us and we embrace him. Good news. That's why I want to tell Peter. Do you belong to Christ? Do you know Christ? It's not your faith. 
faith in Christ. So this week, no matter what the gospel is going on shifting in our cultures, get back to focus on the gospel of good news. Let me close. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you that we get off and you get us back on. Thank you that you hold us. And so we say thank you for all these things. Wonderfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.